Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. You're listening to Travel and Light, written and performed by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Peter Case. Two-time Grammy nominee Peter Case made a name for himself in the pioneering California power-pop trio The Nerves before going on to form The Plimsolls, which made a splash with the single A Million Miles Away. Launching a solo career with producer T-Bone Burnett in the mid-1980s, Case went on to earn a reputation as a songwriter's songwriter with staples such as Old Blue Car, Intella Hotel, Two Angels, Travel and Light, Dream About You, and Beyond the Blues. His songs have been recorded by The Go-Go's, Marshall Crenshaw, Goo Goo Dolls, John Prine, Robert Earl Keane, James McMurtry, Chris Smither, Robert Randolph, John Prine, Alejandro Escovedo, Joe Ely, Hayes Carl, Dave Alvin, and others. Peter's most recent album, Dr. Moan, is his first collection of original songs in seven years. Part one. So, Scott, I've had this idea of a topic for us to talk about before Uh one of the episodes, the the part one episode. And I'm going to be really open and forthright with our listeners to say that you've not been excited about this topic. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's fair. I don't know why, but it's sort of like it's, it's captured my imagination. Okay. And I think it it might've been around the time that you were telling me that you were going to do this Willie Nelson, uh, the written piece for the rock and roll hall of fame. Right. And I started thinking about Willie Nelson and started thinking about how, well-known, how famous, what a legend he is. And then I thought about Willie Nelson's guitar. Right. Trigger. Yeah. Which he's always got it with him. It's a, it's a, you can recognize it from a mile away. It's his carved up, beat up old guitar. Right. And Willie Nelson is so famous that his guitar, I think, has become more famous than some of Willie's contemporaries ended up being. (laughs) I think the guitar itself has taken on a life of its own. And I started thinking about like, these iconic instruments, not just these iconic writers and players that we talk about all the time, but there are instruments out there that have become, you know, legendary right. just because of their association with certain artists. You know, not all of them have names. Right. Trigger has yeah. a name. Lucille has a name. Lucille has a name, uh, which is B.B. King's guitar. The, the difference there, of course, is that I think B.B. used like some substitute Lucille's. I think there was like a whole closet full of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had multiple Lucille's. There is only one trigger. Um, which is crazy to me. Yeah. That and, and I was like, well, how many artists are there that have a, an instrument like that? Yeah. That's and as far as the only one, that there's only one and it's that legendary, I don't know that there's another one besides Willie. Uh, yeah. Um that's a good question. Because you you, you think about uh Paul McCartney associated with the Hofner bass. Right. And if anyone knows what I mean, but the Hofner, it sort of looks like a, a violin right. type body. Um, and at the time, I think when Paul got it, I don't think that was an expensive or um, a desired model of bass. I think right. he made it that. Yeah. And to the point that like, even to this day, people will be like, oh, cool Beatle bass. Exactly. If you yeah. if you get a Hofner, it's a Beatle bass, yeah. um, which I imagine has, has probably put them on the map in a way they never would have been. Yeah. Um, but there are certain guitars, like you don't have to see Eddie Van Halen playing. If I show you what's known as the Frankenstrat, which is that red right. and white guitar with the pattern across it, you know immediately who that is. Yeah. In fact, if I, like they, they make like clothing. I've seen shoes that have the Frankenstrat kind of you just know, that color pattern. pattern on them. Yeah. Wow. And you'd immediately see the shoes and be like Eddie Van Halen. I think that's fascinating. Yeah. That's why I enjoy this conversation. <laughs> and I, you know, 
I'm trying to make you enjoy it. I don't know if you can hear my energy. It's it's rising to like a, <laughs> a, a level. I'm trying to bring you where I'm at. No, I hear it, it is interesting. And, and I guess the, you know, I would think of like Jimmy Page and he's got the double neck Gibson and it's not, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily like no one could ever have that guitar. I mean, the thing I guess about Willie Nelson and Trigger is it's like, I, I don't think I've even seen a guitar like that. No. Um, but yeah, no, but you think of Jimmy Page and like, I've seen Jimmy Page play other guitars, but there's something like if I was going to be Jimmy Page for Halloween, I would definitely think I need the double neck. Double neck SG. Like, that's the, yeah. yeah. The Les Paul is another one that you would associate with, with Page. Um, when he went on to play with the firm, he got away from the Zeppelin style guitars. Right. Uh, because I think he didn't want to be associated with that again, which is a sort of an indication of how iconic those guitars are, that they just scream Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Um, I think you know with Prince you have that kind of cloud guitar that that white guitar with the you know oh the shape like the kind of looks like his yeah this, yeah. this kind of almost like his symbol yeah well he's got one that looks like his symbol but I know the white cloud he's guitar. also got the Telecaster that he yeah. plays yeah which I wouldn't necessarily associate a Telecaster with Prince's style of music I normally I think Springsteen Petty James Burton yeah you know from Elvis's band but uh, you know Prince turned into a, a funk instrument right right. Yeah, and it's it's um, like even a, a little more, even though now she's been inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but Sheryl Crow, who I think of as more like a more contemporary artist than some of the ones we're talking about. Um, I always picture her. She's got this like uh, Gibson. I think it's a country and Western model mm. acoustic guitar. And it's got this um, very specific pick guard. I, I think of that as like the Sheryl Crow guitar. Right. You know, right. I associate that with her. Yeah, you got John Lennon and Harrison with the Rickenbackers. You've got um, Kurt Cobain with what they call the Jagstang, which is they put together a Jaguar and a Mustang bodies and created yeah. that for him. Well, and uh, also Kurt Cobain kind of popularized the Buck Owens model, the right. red, white, and blue which guitar. Which was on the Unplugged. Which started out as there was only one. Buck Owens played a red, white, and blue acoustic guitar on Hee Haw, and then they manufactured right. the Buck Owens model guitar, which fell out of favor for years, and then... Kurt Cobain used it on Unplugged. Um, Honestly, that kind of made it cool again. Buck Owens, we probably should have brought him up earlier because yeah, that, he that red, red, white, white and blue. blue. Yeah. yeah, that's iconic. Yeah. What's crazy to me is that, oh, Bo Diddley, by the way, too, the square. Guitar. Yes, yes. What's crazy to me is that we can really only do this with guitars. Like, why doesn't Elton John have a recognizable piano? <laughs> right. You know, or, or like so, just a way that the, some kind of print or something they put on the piano. Right to make it look like an Elton piano, but there's not one. I was about to say maybe because all pianos look the same, but maybe that's just a non-piano player saying that. But, I mean, his <laughs> whole thing in Vegas is called the red piano. So I mean, they, <laughs> that's they, a good point, but he's not associated with it. And for a guy being that flashy, you would think that he would have at some point been like, yes, this, I play a clear piano <laughs> right, with goldfish swimming in it. <laughs> totally. And that's all I do. <laughs> Only that. Uh, yeah, no, you don't. Uh, you don't hear drummers or or even bass players really. No, the Hoffner's like, the only one. Yeah, yeah. There's not that. Uh, yeah. So what is it about the guitar that makes somebody's relationship with it special enough that it gets a name or it becomes? I mean, a signature instrument. You can sleep in bed with a guitar. You can't that's, do that with a drum kit. That's true. Uh, another guitar that's quite famous in the world of country music is uh, the guitar that Marty Stewart plays, which was originally a guitar uh, owned by Clarence White, who played with the Birds for a while. Speaking of uh, Rickenbackers and yeah. uh, Roger McGuinn and the Birds is iconic, you know, for the, has the Rickenbacker uh, that twelve string sound. But Clarence White had the first what they call B bender, where you can bend 
the actual guitar and it like bends the whole B yeah. string so that you can play and make it sound like a pedal steel. And uh, Marty Stewart bought that guitar from Clarence White's widow. And the thing that I think is interesting about that is if you go see Marty Stewart play, unlike any other artist who's got an arsenal of guitars back there and is changing guitars after every song, he plays that guitar wow. every song. Like he doesn't have a, a guy running out, bringing him a different guitar. It's like, that is his guitar. That's his sound. He uses it. Um, so in, in a microcosm of a, of a niche kind of world, that is definitely iconic. See, now you got me going. I was about to say, did, did you guys hear that? Like <laughs> there's been a change. Like I, Buck Owens, I think it started. That's where, yeah. It started to change a little that's bit. That's where it turned. Yeah. 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 Um, Angus Young always plays the, oh, the sure. Gibson SG. Yeah. Um, uh, and he's also wears the little schoolboy uniform, so that helps complete the whole, you know, <laughs> <Right>. picture. <laughs> I just wonder if this would be possible now. You know, I mean, is is our media and our consumption of music, and even the way music is played, it, it, do we live in a world where someone could have a recognizable instrument now? Right. And you know, even John Mayer. I mean, I've seen him with this like distressed Strat. Right. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that it's an old old Strat, and not something that's just been. You know, yeah, that's not assumed. Made to look old, <laughs> but um, you know, with uh, he would be the guy to do it. Yeah, and, and I still don't know that there's like, oh my, that's John Mayer's guitar. You right, know, you could right. see it in a photo on its own and know that it's his guitar. Yeah. Um. I yeah, I can't think of current examples. I, I'm I'm still my mind is popping with uh, Billy Gibbons plays Goldie the Gold Top uh, Les Paul, which has become a famous guitar. Yeah. And, you know, like if you go to Hard Rock Cafe, they always have all these guitars on the wall, which I think like there's so many Hard Rock Cafes now. How can any of these guitars possibly have meaning? <laughs> there's probably like 10 meaningful right. ones that were in the right. original Hard Rock Cafe, um, which, by the way, I went to within the last year. And it is pretty cool because they have like that was the original Hard Rocks. They've well, got there you go. they've got the Bo Diddley guitar in there. They've got, uh, you know, some of the true iconic guitars. Rick Nielsen had what, five necks on one guitar? Yes. Uh, and when I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they had that. It was on loan, but it was they were getting ready to send it back to him, or he just sent it to them, or something. But it was like back behind where it wasn't on display. And uh, so my dad and I were back there, and they were giving us a little like behind the scenes tour, yeah. and they let us hold it. Wow, it is heavy. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and for our listeners to understand, you know, like a double neck guitar, there's a reason for that. Like the, yeah. you know, the Stairway to Heaven yeah. double neck SG. We're talking about there's a there's a twelve string section right. where you can play the twelve string parts, and then when you want to shift over to your six string parts for the solo and whatnot, then you've got that neck there. Right. The five neck guitar. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess you've got separate pickups that those necks feed into. But that's as easy as the flick of a switch. So right. um, I think this might just be for, I think it's just for effect. It's for the spectacle Dramatic of Dramatic effect. <laughs> right. And how difficult must that thing be to play? Like yeah. you can't even see around it. It's right, like right. Holding yeah, it's, a giant it's, fern. It's practically unplayable, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, people. But we're talking about it. We're talking about I it. I think which that's is the, the whole point. point. Well, I think the takeaway here is. Uh, you got to have the right tool for the right job, right? You know, you've yep. got these guitar players, they know what they need to get the sound and, and the look that they want. Um, but if you're trying to get the sound that you want and you're frustrated, maybe say trying to make a demo at your house ah, and yeah. uh, you've got a song you've written and you want to make a recording of it that sounds good and you just 
kind of keep hitting that wall. You're like, oh, I just can't quite get something that I'm really happy with and proud of. Um, maybe you're just not picking the right tool from the toolbox. And have we got the tool for you? There is no bigger tool than our friend Justin <laughs> at Pearl Snap Studios. No, I'm joking. Yo, this is how we find out if Justin's actually listening to these ads. <laughs> Justin is uh, not a tool. Justin is an amazing guy, incredibly talented, but uh, he is the guy that you want to talk to if you uh, want to make a demo that sounds like a real honest to goodness professional demo because this guy and his team at Pearl Snap Studios uh, they have got it dialed in they know how to take any song in any form no matter how rough it is and get a studio quality demo that you can be proud of yeah because the idea is to get you to the point where we all know what guitar you play exactly we want to get you to the point where it's like oh my gosh there's insert name here he always plays that Taylor acoustic. Exactly. He always plays that Martin. Yeah. He always plays that Gibson. Yeah. When you become that famous, we will know. And it will start here. Yes. When you take this song to Justin and let Justin use his guitars and his bass and his drums and his all that kind of stuff. So to elevate you and yes. elevate your song to the point that one day Scott and I will sit here and we will talk about your iconic instruments, your iconic songs and your legendary career. So quit farting around with Pro Tools and send that song to Justin. Let him get that demo for you so that you can get on your way to becoming an iconic artist with an iconic instrument that we will be talking about here on Songcraft in the future. PearlSnapStudios.com. Check them out. Tell them Songcraft sent you. And if you do, you'll get a discount on your first demo. Part two. Peter, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thanks, man. Good to be here, Scott. Yeah, you are a writer who has done a lot of different things. Um, you have been in power pop bands. You have been an acoustic troubadour. You have been a rocker. Uh, you know, you've explored a lot of, a lot of ground, uh, as a writer and artist. And I understand that you were born and raised in upstate New York. We'd love to hear a bit about what you were kind of soaking up in those early years that made an impression that that caught your ear that made you think like huh this is something that that i'd like to dabble in at some point i grew up in buffalo south of buffalo in a place called hamburg new york if you see those shows where they show you like news shows where they show where they had seven feet of snow last night in buffalo <laughs> it's always hamburg where they oh, wow. had it <laughs> the, other, the other people in buffalo called hamburg the snow belt because it's right south of lake erie and it's right south about 10 miles south of buffalo and uh, I grew up out there, you know, listening to my family's music. Hmm. My family loved music. And so I, I was the youngest of a bunch of kids. My sisters were teenagers during the rock and roll era, Elvis and Fats Domino and Chuck Berry. Elderly brothers were played in our house, Ray Charles. My mother liked Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra. My dad liked Dixieland and... Things like that. He liked big band and swing more, you know. I didn't, we didn't listen to that as much in the house. We had Harry Belfani's Calypso record. I flipped out when I was a little kid over the Kingston Trio. I was like, wow, hmm. going shopping with my mother. I must have been six. And uh, I was really obsessed with that song, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, Poor Boy, You're Bound to Die. It really was uh, shocking emotionally (laughs) the death in it you know and and i just kind of i was obsessed by the kingston trio there for a while and i had a few of their records my sister came back from college after all that elvis presley you know i inherited all her uh, rock and roll singles wow Uh, yeah had link ray rumble you know and bill justice raunchy and uh 
78s of Elvis and Fats, as well as the 45s. Right. And the only album we had was an Everly Brothers album. Wow. That was the first album we had. And we had the Belafonte record. And when she came back from college, she had Joan Baez. And at this point, I was still really little. Like, I was probably about eight. And she had the first Joan Baez, first, maybe the first two Joan Baez records. And I liked those a lot, too. So, more songs about death, like Barbara Allen and... Uh, What's that one the band covered? Long Black Val was originally, I heard it on Joan Baez's record when I was a little tiny top. Wow. wow. And I loved all that kind of music. There were some guys in my family that used to come over and sing kind of risque, risque hillbilly songs. <laughs> uh, the Skinner brothers would come over. They were cousins from Syracuse, and they would come over uh, and play guitars, and they'd send the kids out of the room. <laughs> but we would listen from the top of the stairway or from the, you know, and they would sing naughty songs, you know, uh, <laughs> and everybody would laugh uproariously while they were drinking, you know. Uh, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the Kingston Trio. My, my dad was a fan of the Kingston Trio as well. And, and I, I often thought it was funny, the stuff that they could get away with singing about. They seem so white bread. And so, yeah. you know, it, but yeah, they're singing about Tom Dooley dying. They're singing about this dude that gets stuck on the MTA that, that can't get off the train. Uh, I remember being a kid and hearing that they didn't give a damn about a greenback dollar, and I thought that was really salacious. Great when song. Said that, you know, <laughs> and even Scotch. Other songs soda, were great. They know? they always every song they did was great. They had this song called uh, "Bad Man Blunder," which was based on. I found out later it was based on a Cisco Houston uh, song that Cisco Houston played in the fifties. But it was uh, all I ever did was shoot a deputy down. Yes. <laughs> right. Remember that one. No, but that, yeah. I, that reminds me of I Shot the Sheriff or something like that. We're just it, You're just going to dance around and smile about something really, really dark. <laughs> it's a really crazy song. At the end of the song, the guy gets uh, life in prison, and he goes, it could have been worse, you know? And, uh, this, <laughs> and at the end, he goes, this whole thing sure has been a lesson to me. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> like that was goofy, you know, goofy, really rebellious, but goofy too and funny, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, so I loved them. They were a great group, really. Yeah. Well, on your website, in your bio, you, you say that uh, at the age of 11, you wrote your first song, which was called Stay Away. And uh, w usually we have a hard time getting people to uh, to uh, to own up to it or, or admit it. But uh, we would love to hear about your first song, Stay <laughs> Away, and, and maybe even and maybe even catch a few lines, if you remember. Oh, I know the song. I mean, it's simple, you know, uh, Stay away, I'm no good for you. Stay away, cause I want you to. Stay away, stay away. It was like that kind of, one of those wow. kind of C A minor kind of songs. And I had a group at the time and we played that song. Uh, we used to play, that's the only song we really played. <laughs> and we would play, we have, it seemed like, you know, and so we played it a lot after school. My parents both, you know, had jobs, you know, um, and my mother worked. And to, as well as my father. So there was nobody home at the house until uh, dinner time. And so every day we would let ourselves into this house and practice uh, our songs um, in the living room and then tear it down before they got home. Wow. And, and so that's, I wrote Stay Away um, inspired by, it was 1965, I guess. The big inspiration uh, at the time was the Beatles, you know, writing their own songs. Yeah. And uh, 
I never really think a lot about songwriting before until uh, somebody mentioned that they wrote songs. Like, they never, I never thought that anybody wrote any of those Kingston Trio songs or Elvis songs. It never occurred to me. Yeah, they right. just happened, right? Yeah, it, it never occurred to me. Like, they, I just thought Elvis just sang them or something. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> Chuck Perry, I mean, that's just their song. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, but then when the Beatles said, well, they're songwriters, you know? And, oh, really? And they're song? Well, you can be a songwriter and be a Beatle, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you eventually wound up in uh, San Francisco in the early 70s and working as a, a street musician. And there are a lot of lessons, I think, for musicians to learn. Um, well, I mean, there's lessons to be learned just from playing in a bar where maybe nobody cares. But when you are trying to capture the attention of someone who is literally walking by and you have, you know, one to two seconds to to capture uh, their attention. There's a lot to be learned as a performer there, but I would imagine there's also something to be learned about what type of songs or what type of song writing, uh, you know, plays a part in that in terms of, of capturing, uh, someone's attention. I'm curious if there are lessons that you learned from, from busking on the street that you applied to your life as a songwriter. Busking on the street was a, very uh, powerful lesson in a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that really influenced my songwriting was uh, still back in Buffalo, I, I started hanging out with these older kids at this apartment. There goes my ride. <laughs> uh, it was like the first guys that had their own apartment. You know, they were a couple years older than me, and I was like 14, 15, and they were like, uh, 18 19 and so there'd be the big you know obviously there was like a big party going on over there all the time you know and we i would go in the bathroom and write songs and then bust out of the bathroom in the middle of the party and like play my new songs for people in this party and like i knew i would write songs that i knew would make people laugh hmm. and uh um so i wrote or i would write songs that uh and i also i started putting together uh you know, they say you write what you know, and I, was, I would write songs about the people there and what they were doing. And so I had this one about this guy, Michael. He went that way in a truck and he didn't give a fuck if he got to Woodstock or not. He's going to make the scene when the cops are mean and I hope that he doesn't get shot. He got <laughs> caught swimming nude. Cops thought it was kind of crude, so they canned him for a week or two. He was sitting in his cell in his own private hell when he was rescued by the ACLU. You know? <laughs> That's a song I wrote in 1969 when that guy went to Woodstock. You know? Wow. And uh, and uh, the chorus was, here he comes, there he goes, here he comes, there he goes. It was, you know, it was a big <laughs> laugh, and we would play it at these parties, and, and uh, um, people would laugh. And then I had another one called Monopoly Board Blues that I wrote around the same period of time about playing Monopoly. It was just a stupid song about, like, something I knew, which was, like, you know, so it was, like, based on a Dylan kind of thing. It was, like, got the blues and the purples of my Monopoly board. Lost my baby at the free parking zone. <laughs> you know, community chess may be all right for those that pass go, but don't go down on Baldick Avenue. <laughs> then, it, then it goes to a bridge. 
I'm all hung up, sitting in jail. Can't get nobody to pay my bail. But I'm relaxed and my mind is at ease. Like Dylan says, I shall be released. <laughs> wow. You know, I, you know, <laughs> you know, I just quoted, right? You know, let's just quote Dylan right there. Might as well. And so that song was a hit with people too. And then finally, I wrote the song. You know, those were party songs and they were goofy, you know, and fun, you know. And there was a bunch of other ones too. And then I wrote this one called. Uh, I'm just hanging on, it was called. And that's actually, I wrote it in a church. They gave me the key to the Unitarian Church. And so I wrote a song in there, you know. I did a lot of other things in there too, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was a fun a fun office to have at that time, a big church all alone, you know. Wow. I have, uh, you know, whatever. But, you know, to go on with that, I wrote it in there and it sounded great. So I recorded it on the midnight broadcast record exactly the way i wrote it on a piano in a church and so you can hear it on there exactly the way i wrote it smiling salutations from a soldier boy dressed in blue denim and corduroy they don't care what you say if you talk fast they listen anyway they're just hanging on they're just hanging on I think that the way the song craft worked at the time, and it always seems to work like this for me, is if I write a lot of other things and I'm in shape to make rhymes and to make lines. So when I was in eighth grade, there was a little girl with like uh, long hair and glasses and I was sweet on her. And so I started writing all this poetry all the time. And I wrote a ton of poetry. Right. Wow. And she was like, she liked it. And I would give it to her, you know, and uh, I wrote so much of that, that I got good at making these lines. Huh. And so I would just go up, be able to go off to this place and write these songs for this apartment, because I was in shape. I'd like mm. written a lot of things. I just writ I had notebooks and notebooks full of lines. I, I threw them all away at some at, at some point, you know, well, you know, in, in the mid-70s, you co-founded the Bay Area punk band, The Nerves, um, and joined kind of as the bassist. And it's it's interesting because I feel like the way you describe these these parties when you're bringing these songs out, it's almost like you're recreating your youth and the, the way you came down and heard these funny songs about, you know, ribald hillbilly stories, and then you're showing up at the party. Not true. You know, you, your life influences are coming out in your music. And then the song, When You Find Out, that showed up on that four-song EP for The Nerves, is another area where... I feel like I see your influences showing up. I feel like there's some real early Beatles influence. I try to explain, but you don't see. No one can give you more love than me. You say you're waiting for just the right one. You'll try to find me when he lets you down. When you find out, I was the one. When you find out, I was the one. This is the last time. Did you feel like something was kind of beginning to come together when you formed that band and you started to put those songs together? Like, hey, I'm starting to feel my voice begin to show up in my songs. You know, when you asked about the street singing thing, I did learn a lot from it, but I didn't write very many songs for the first couple of years I was on this. Like for that first year I was on the street, I fooled around with a few songs. And then the first song I really wrote, I wrote a lot, though. Like I said, I write a lot, yeah. but I didn't write I didn't write songs. I just had tons of all these uh, things I would sit in on light restaurants and write different, you know, kind of stuff, you know, not even poetry, really just writing. Mm. And and uh, that's what I call it because I'm not really a 
poet. I'm a writer, but I yeah. just write, you know. And uh, then one, a number of different things happen, and and your that song when you find out it was an expression of a real thing that was happening to me. In fact, all the songs really, in certain ways, are expressions of real things that are happening. I don't just make them up out of whole cloth very often. Mm. And so when you find out it was a song that expressed something that. I wanted to, one of the things I had going at that time was I was like living in this uh, one room, SRO apartment, you know, room, you know, hotel room in a cheap hotel. And, and I had a book of, I think it was called Beatlemania and it had like, uh, you know, 50 Beatles songs in it or mm. something. And so I was learning the chords to like uh, Rubber Soul and all the Beatles songs have such great chords. And so... Uh, Rebel Soul had really interesting chords. I was learning a lot of them. Um, I don't know, maybe not even just Rubber Soul, but just the whole that whole period. Mm. And that's the same as the writing I do. Like it, it lays a groundwork if you're just learning music and stretching yourself and learning other people's songs. You don't really plagiarize it, but you uh, uh, it, it it activates your brain. Mm. Yeah. And so when I came around to when you find out it was activated, uh, you know, I don't know um, the nerves weren't exactly like doing the music like the nerves were doing wasn't exactly what I was into when I met Jack who was the other guy that started that band you know and uh, I didn't really want to uh, play two minute 60 songs but I wanted to play bass in a band I decided to be in a band after being solo and playing all these coffee houses and stuff and I liked the idea of being in a band and writing our songs and trying to make it big you know yeah. uh, and all that kind of thing and so we started writing these two minute minimalist songs you know and that's that's what that's what we were into there and it was like a, a step back towards basics mm. yeah yeah for me yeah and learning how to play bass in a band like that and be in a band. Yeah. Right. Right. You, you know, and then, and then now you got a new thing going on. You have to sell the song to the guys in the band too, you know, and so <laughs> right. in the nerves, they had to be undeniably like together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, you couldn't have any slop, you know, cause like those, especially Jack Lee would sit there and like, just confront you about it. And so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I learned a lot from him really uh, about, um, editing, you know, I guess, and like just getting your song really down, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, but I already had that. And when, in that song, just hanging on, if you hear that, I mean, that's already every line, every, every word in it, you know, I knew how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, not sure how I learned how to do that. Probably just listen to the Bob Dylan, the Kingston trio, uh, Lieber and Stoller, Lennon and McCartney, Lennon and McCartney are sloppier than those other people, hmm. but, but, uh, but their songs are great because they're of what they had, but you know the great thing about Bob Dylan stuff is the songs are so long you can you really get like a huge and they repeat so much that you get it drives it into your head the rhythms of the lines yeah yeah and, yeah. and you learn it from that you know there's so much to be said I think from learning by soaking up you know influences and thinking about you know how are these songs constructed how are these things put together that I love you know what is it that resonates with me about these songs and you were doing that. It sounds like almost instinctively you, you were soaking up songs and then you had the right instincts to, to start writing. One of the things that, that people might not be aware of is that you are someone who um, actually teaches songwriting workshops. You know, you, you are a songwriting, you know, mentor to people. You, you've, I've seen you, you know, I've seen stuff like at McCabe's here in LA and things where you've done, you know, songwriter uh, workshops for people who are trying to sharpen their songwriting skills. 
I'm curious at this point in your life, now that you are someone who, you know, who, who teaches this stuff, if you could go back to your, you know, self in, in that era, when, when the nerves was just kind of starting up, what would be the one thing that, that you of today would want to communicate to that young guy, uh, who was feeling his way into songwriting at that time? Well, I suppose that the most important thing is to be in touch with some sort of flow of ideas and to, and to allow that to happen as much as possible. And so, like I said, I used to just sit there and write, but I could have done that more during different periods, like in the nerves, I could have done it more. And I, in the nerves, I tried to like, just focus on writing these tight little songs. That was a lot harder than just sitting there and writing, but I would have been a lot more prolific during the nerves period if I would have just allowed that process in a way I clamped down on it because I'm not sure why but but I I, I kind of let it go a little bit and I was just trying to write the songs yeah but really what works for me is is profusion <laughs> and so you know if you can tap into something that you like to do like I love I just love to write and it does I don't need to it tells me what I think and it it's fun. I don't know. I just like it. I write about things I see. I write about things I think. I write letters. And I just like, the, you know, that I don't send even, you know, just all sorts of different things. That to me, I think is the probably the, the if you're going to be a songwriter to with your lyrics, that helps a lot. Yeah. You know, like have a profusion, write a lot, read books. Yeah. Songwriters need to read books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Read books and if read books that make you that you don't understand the first time you read them. Yeah. Read them again. That's not hard for me to find books I don't understand. <laughs> right. Me either. <laughs> like any book that's worth reading, you don't understand when you first read it. Really. <laughs> so you read read books that you read twice. Yeah, that's good. You know, and uh, stop. You know, uh, that's important. I would say that that's as important. But nobody ever listens to. Um, I quit teaching songwriting because nobody listens to anything you try to tell them. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to come in and play their songs and get a pat on the back, you yeah. know, and I quit. Um, a few, there's a couple people that pick, that you saw the lights go on and all those years I taught songwriting, but I don't really do it anymore. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. You know, when, when you talk about that much writing, you know, writing letters and writing thoughts down and, and just almost like a, a journaling kind of approach to writing. There's this other thing that we do in the music industry where we prioritize one song over another. Well, this is better because it's a single or this is better because it's a hit. But oftentimes as the writer, we know that that doesn't necessarily mean a song is better than the other one. It just happened to unlock certain keys to get it into a certain format, be it radio or whatever. How do you sort of deal with that as, you know, when you're, when you're in bands, you're trying to, like you said, sell the songs to the band, then you're trying to sell the songs to the label, then you're trying to sell the songs to radio, when you know full well that it's not always the better songs that, that make it that far. Do you find yourself prioritizing songs when you're writing them, or do they all just sort of feel like your kids at the same time? It's important to not be into that head when you're actually trying to write the song. Yeah. Because you just got to be right there in the moment and in the day and, you know, and not, you can't be, uh, I've had songs that I've spent a lot, a lot of time written very long, you know, versions of and everything, and they don't even make it on a record or anything. Uh, you write them for the love of the game, you know, and then sometimes they turn out, sometimes they don't. You never really know when you're starting something where, where it's going to end up and you don't know you know, what's going to be the single and all this kind of talk, you know, like uh, anymore, you know, especially it's difficult. 
uh, I don't know, you know, it's, you're better not getting into all that. You know, they say you could call it left brain. Mm. Yeah. Considerations. You might want to get into them when you're trying to like hustle your career, you yeah. know, uh, which I guess you got to do because hustle makes the world go around like Andrew Lou <laughs> Goldham says, but you know, <laughs> you got to hustle, but you know, you can't be doing that while you're writing. You, the writing itself isn't going to be good if it's a hustle. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be um, something that's tug, plugged into something important. Yeah. Yeah. Heart. For sure. Well, in the late seventies, after the nerves broke up, uh, you formed the rock band, the Plimsolls and a uh, couple major label records you guys released. I think probably your, your signature song is a million miles away. Um, and you know, that's a song that, uh, got a ton of airplay in, in LA and, and Goo Goo Dolls later covered it. And, uh, is one of the songs that I think most people just kind of know from one place or another is just sort of become part of our, you know, cultural awareness. I started to do a different Of people cover that Fu Manchu just covered it. Oh, wow! Oh, well. The Flame and Groovies covered it. Yeah, it's a great song. Did you know that one was special when you finished it? Not really, huh? I knew it was good, yeah, but I, you know, I wrote two other songs the same day. <laughs> oh, wow, with the those guys we were working on, and we had all three of them on a tape, and then we heard it later. And we, I mean, it was really fun to write it, you know, and yeah. then, uh, it was satisfying to write it, but it, it did. I didn't know necessarily, you know, I was just working, you know, I was just trying to write. Yeah. Yeah. But, and we were just writing for fun and for, you know, f you know, for, we were writing furiously. Uh, we had the plimsolls going on and I, these two, I wrote with these two other guys where it was sort of my brill building huh. fantasy, writing with Alcus and Frack. And I'd, we'd go over and, you know, do whatever we had to do and just sit at this table and like make up songs and sing them into the tape recorders. And that's what we're doing. Like every day I had a day off. Wow. And so, uh, and so it was so much fun though. It was like, a, like a super kick, a big laugh, you know, that song is a song I'm real proud, you know, I'm proud of it, but I don't feel like it's my best song or anything, but it's definitely my most well-known one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, in that same era, um, you know, the Go-Go's recorded tonight, which is a song that, that you wrote with uh, Charlotte and Jane from, from the band. And mm -hmm. I was curious if, you know, if you in that era were thinking of yourself and, and you mentioned the term Brill Building there, but I was curious if you were thinking of yourself as someone who might uh, be kind of a behind the scenes songwriter or were you always thinking towards, you know, band or, or solo artist, you know, you are going to be delivering the songs. Well, I started thinking of myself as a behind-the-scenes songwriter back when I was in The Nerves, and Jack got that cover for um, Blondie, and Blondie cut two Nerves songs on their biggest, their biggest, you know, their debut, you know, not their debut, but on their uh, world smash, you know, the, the one that sold 8 million copies, uh, Parallel Lines, had two Nerves songs on it. Yeah. And so if The Nerves wouldn't have been such a b number of jerks in the group, all three of us were just... <laughs> 
idiots. You know, <laughs> we, we, we were all fighting with each other all the time about all this stuff. If we just would have banded together, we had three really, you know, good songwriters. Uh, we could have been writing for a lot of people, including wow. ourselves, if we just would have been patient, but the band fractured, you know? Yeah. But I, that did kind of wake me up to that idea. So there was a bit of that in in the mix, yeah. 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 You know, you mentioned writing those Plimsoll songs when you had a day off. Were you actually working like a nine to five job at the same time that you were carrying on these band projects? The Plimsolls was worse than a nine to five job. It was like <laughs> driving and playing. We played so much, and every you know they'd come pick us up in a van, and you'd go off to. We just worked so hard. No, I wow. didn't have a nine to five job in the Plimsolls. I painted houses between the nerves and the Plimsolls. Okay, and. uh you know, that was a big job. You know, it was 12-hour days out in the 104-degree yeah. heat, you know. But when I got in the Plimsolls, all we did was, you know, you, if you had a gig in San Diego, and then we'd play like in, uh, uh, you know, Phoenix, and we'd play, you know, go to Las Vegas, and we'd play all up and down Orange County, and then we'd go up to San Francisco, and we'd play over in Tahoe, and we'd, you know, and some every once in a while we'd go out and, you know, so we were just all over the place touring, especially in California, though. There were just so many gigs, yeah. and we played so many of them. And so we would be working all the time, and then you'd come home from a – like, generally, like, we were working every weekend, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah. And then coming back to L.A., and you'd be kind of wasted on Monday, but I'd go over to Joey and Chris's and start writing. And then we'd have rehearsal – you know, like Tuesday or something. Wow. And so, so like we rehearsed and then, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday, but maybe I would also go right with Joey and Chris on Tuesday and Wednesday and then back on the road again, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and just on and on and on. and went on for several years like wow. that. Wow. Your debut solo album came out on Geffen Records in 1986, self-titled record produced by T-Bone Burnett. And I would imagine that um, for people who knew you from the Nerves or the Plimsolls, uh, this was probably a, a bit of a um, a defier of expectations as an album because it really, you know, you got songs like Old Blue Car on there and and things that um, they're a little more rootsy. They're a little, you're sort of drawing from some uh, maybe different aspects or drawing in different ways from, from aspects of, of things that shaped you. Talk a bit about that process of reinventing yourself as a solo artist and, and how you approached writing songs for that first record. Okay. Well, to, you know, at the start of the show here, you talked about all the different kind of things but my you know i do power pop and i did rock and roll and then i did so but to me it was all part of the same thing it was songs hmm. putting together songs and and putting those across so when i was in the nerves i got to this like real simple place of putting across those kind of like two minute songs and then in the plimsolls we got three and a half minute songs you <laughs> right. know right and so you know, the Plimsolls allowed more influences into their music than the Nerves did. The Nerves were like really, Rick, we were into like, we were into Bacharach and Motown hmm. and the Stones yeah. and the Beatles, you know. Right. And th that's what we were into. And the 60s pop music. And then the the the, um, the Plimsolls let folk rock in and had let soul music in. And so I, I was letting more of what I loved into the music. And so when I finally got to the point where I'm going to go solo, it was because I was letting a whole lot more that I knew from my earlier days. I was becoming more, you know, putting everything together, you know, the songwriting and the singing, but also all that music I loved, you know, the 
the blues records and the Mississippi John Hurt records and the Kingston Trio records, even everything that I loved and the fifties that I grew up in and trying to put it all together in one thing. Yeah. But it, the big thing was that the difference was that the writing on that solo record uh, it had jumped a step, I think. And I, I grew up a step from, you know, my best songs really before that were like oldest story in the world and million miles away and these kind of things. I mean, all the songs were pretty good, but they were pretty much, they were sort of like telegrams or something, you know? Mm, yeah. And then all of a sudden, like I sort of had these songs that took, they took a bigger bite lyrically and, and, and musically. I, I don't think in a way it, it was different, but in a way it wasn't, you know, there's songs on that first record that are, you know, pretty rock and roll. Like I shook his hand and, uh, um, Satellite Beach had Mike Campbell playing on it, you know, from the Petty Band. And, yeah. Um, uh, you know, we had, and there's a rhythm all the time through all the stuff, you know, tracks that really rock like three days straight and all that. But it was just a, it was a f shift in focus to the solo and to the, you're right, to the roots music. I was letting more of what I loved into the music. I believe that your job as a musician, really, as a band or as a solo actor, whatever you are, is to take everything, is to make the record you would like to hear. Huh. Yeah. You're yeah. the artist. And so you make the record you would love to hear and you put together your fantasy of what you think a great record would be, a great music would be. And that's what I did on my first record. You know, I, 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 I loved grooves and I loved like uh, percussion and so songs like Echo Wars and uh, Steel Strings and some of the, and they, they had like pretty sophisticated rhythm to them as well as being folk oriented in a sense not folk oriented but like acoustic the kind of song that you could sing with the whole group but you could also just sit there and sing it completely solo yeah because right. everything was written into the song you know right and right. so that was the idea on that record really yeah. and it was to take all those influences and put them together in a new way well it's interesting you say you know taking influences and putting them together in a, in a new way because on the the follow-up record um, you know, I listened to a song from that record, like two angels, and I wouldn't call two angels, a, a blues song, but it absolutely is blues form in that you have, yeah. you know, a line and it repeats that line. And then there's another line. I mean, that is classic blues form, but it's not a traditional blues right. song. So you, you see in your writing how you're absorbing, um, certain influences and then putting them through the filter of your own personality. There must have been two angels Was it you and me? There must have been two angels Was it you and me? Now those angels have flown Left us here on our own How can it be? You got to write songs that are the ones you would want to hear and some, you know, that open up your heart. You know, you mm. got to you got to step out into the songwriting a bit and find the find the wavelengths where it hits you. But that's what it is. I don't know what the question was, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> Two Angels definitely was a blue, you know, had a blues form to it. You know, the funny thing about Two Angels is I made it up on stage. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I made it up. I was at an open mic down in Hollywood and uh I wanted to jam with these guys. There were a bunch of guy drunks up there playing. You know, we were all hanging out. And I came up and said, hey, man, uh, say, Peter Case, you know, come up and sing a song. So I come up and sing a song. They give me a guitar. And I go, 
I just start going, bong, dong, dong, dong. you know, I played that lick because I knew everybody could play it really easily. And then if I did like a blues progression, I knew that everybody would be able to follow it. Yeah. And so, and so then I had those lyrics in my head from something that was going on in my life, you know, something somebody had said and something I thought about and all this kind of thing. And I just sang it and that song just immediately took shape like that. Wow. wow. That's wild. You know, it, it, what you're talking about when you're talking about pulling all these influences together, you're kind of talking about music without boundaries. Um, and, yeah. and I think about, you know, I don't know what it was like in the early days of a band like The Nerves, but when, when you're in a band that's kind of got punk tendencies, there tend to be a lot more boundaries than people would think in terms of staying, is it punk enough? You know, you're even talking about the songs being short There was enough. no punk when The Nerves started. The ner there was no punk rock movement when The Nerves started. So you guys were kind of pioneers of that. Yeah, we were. It was 1974 when I met Jack, and then the band really started in 75, early 75, and there was no punk, like we didn't know anything about no punk anywhere yet, you know, and so, but we had our own prop, like we were what that movement was going to be. We were like really against like guitar solos, uh, long hair, yeah, uh, sloppy bands flatulent you know, you know we, were, we were like angry you know we wanted everything to be you know and so we were like you you know we were like 20 years old and I, you know tw you know we wanted to like uh bring in the new music you know so uh we were our own critics you know and like we wouldn't we would look at every look at each other's songs like over the real jaundiced eye like oh no you know that's too like we wrote this one song it's one of the most popular nerve songs right now it's called Someday, what's it called? Many Roads to Follow, it's called. Yeah. Right. And Paul and I wrote it and recorded it on acoustic guitars up in his apartment one night. That's the version that's out right now that, every, that it, people really like it, you know. Wow. It's one of the most popular nerve songs, but we couldn't get it into the band's repertoire because it was acoustic and it just, <laughs> right. you know, right. it just, you know, you just couldn't do that. So you're right, you know, there are these boundaries and, and uh, the boundaries had to be loosened up, you know. Well, I, I think that's what's kind of amazing about your, your solo records is that it seems like you can sort of hear the freedom beginning to come into your expression. You know, a song right. like Traveling Light, which has basically got like a Zydeco vibe to it, is something I can imagine if you'd written it during the Nerves days to, to try to bring those kind of influences into a band like that. Probably the, the door was just too narrow. But now you're yeah, they weren't going to go for it. Neither, even the Plimsolls weren't going for that. Yeah. But as a solo artist, it seemed like the sky was the limit for you creatively. You could just go after yeah, I wanted whatever to do that. you wanted. That's to. what I did, you know. Yeah. You know, like I'm, you know, sometimes you run into problems. Like we had this other record at the, I did those first two records and there was a lot of freedom, you know, and uh, we had Ry Cooter and David Lindley came in and Keltner was the drummer and uh, David Hidalgo and it was really fun. But then the next record, um, I was hard to get, I, I couldn't get out of the deal. I was trying to get out of the deal. And then uh, they wanted me to work with Mitchell Froome, I'd act, who I'd actually introduced them to several years before, but now they're trying to introduce them to me. Huh. <laughs> And uh, it was crazy, but then that record was a lot more. It was a lot more limited because he was a strong producer, but he wasn't. Re we I don't know. We got on a trip that it was pushed out of. It was 
pushed away from the freedom really they there was so much pressure on that record it squashed it wow. yeah yeah and so then by the time i got onto vanguard i had a lot of songs left over that we didn't use on that record and that's that record called torn again i don't know if you ever heard that yeah 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 and, and even that i mean i think to paul's point like a song like you know blind luck from that record um, right you've got this kind of country-ish americana um, kind of thing that, you know, is not something that you would have been able to explore in, in other uh, band no. contexts. Um, I, I want to ask you a question about, uh, this is kind of a bigger question, um, but, you know, in 1992, you had a, a radio hit with Dream About You, which was a, a top 20 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. Two thousand one and, and two thousand seven, you were uh, both those years nominated for uh, Grammys for best traditional folk album. Um, is is recognition in that way, whether it be charting or or you know award nominations, uh, are those things um, motivators for you? Everybody wants to be recognized. Everybody's listening to this show. You know, dreams of being recognized for what for who they are. You know, and so <laughs> you know it would be nice, but you get to a certain point. You know, it's not really the inspiration to just be rec. You know, you're trying to do something great. You know, I just love songwriting and I love music and singing, and and it makes me happy to do it. And I want to do it really in a great way. I find it exhilarating to do it as best I can. Uh, so like you know, you, you never know like. Sometimes you get recognition from the business and sometimes you don't. Yeah. And and you can't really count on it. So if you if you're just hinging on that, you you know, you would spend a lot of time being really disappointed, you know. Yeah, sure. If you're me. I mean, I don't think if you're you too, maybe even they get seem like they get disappointed, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know. So uh so like John Lennon would get kind of irritated that everybody didn't buy cold turkey or something. Yeah. So <laughs> right. you know, everybody has their problems. Yeah. But uh the thing that really inspires me is the is the excitement of making the stuff and, and making it so surprising yourself and pull you know that's the great thing about songwriting man it's like you sit there and you start with nothing and then a couple hours later whatever it is you know how many hours you, you got this thing and you play it for people now wow you know it's a thing that wasn't here yeah this morning and now it's here yeah. you know yeah and and it's like that with the records and everything it's kind of a magic trick like you're pulling a you know elephant out of a hat or something it's an extraordinarily fun and so and it's very validating just to do that like to make a thing that you can even just play for anybody and they and it, and it expresses a point of view that you relate to yourself you know it takes a certain amount of you go through a certain amount of failure just trying to do that you know yeah, sure uh you know you it is a battle just to make stuff that you you know that that, that gets to that point yeah you right. know it, it, you get frustrated and it's hard so, like sometimes you're like it songwriting so hard you can't believe it you know yeah <laughs> and sometimes it seems really easy but sometimes it's just like oh god this song is driving me nuts and sometimes i have songs i like the uh 
I had this song on Highway 62 that never made the record even. It was like 45 minutes long when you played the whole version, wow. all the lyrics for it. <laughs> wow. And, uh, Why didn't it make the record? <laughs> no, it never made the record. <laughs> it would have been the record. <laughs> would have been there. You could have yeah. put out a whole record just on the song. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I edited it down. You tried to put the best verses in and all that stuff. But I, I wanted to keep working. You know, I just kept working on it, you know. Yeah. You know, I don't know what happened to it. it something weird happened to it. I, I don't know. It never finally... I don't know. You know, and that's what I mean. Like sometimes like, you write something really quick, like two angels, and it just yeah. happens. But it's important to be in shape, like just to write a lot and to like be fluent, you know, in what you're doing. Well, with all the writers that we talk to, there are certain things that we can count on in the conversation. We know there will be talk about radio singles and there'll be talk about publishers and there will be talk about bands and deals and things like that. But one thing that's very unique to your story is that you had heart surgery in 2009. And I'd like to talk about that and how that changed your approach both to your craft and to the things that maybe you were writing about. I don't think it did that much. Like, mm. I don't know. I'm trying to think about what I wrote about since then. You know, I've always been aware of death. Mm. Like I was like a little kid and the lady next door died. Her name was Mrs. Valentine and she used to give me candy when I was little. And I realized when I was like three or four that I was going to die. And I don't think a lot of, I don't know when kids usually realize that, but it blew my mind. Wow. Jeez. And so I'm, you know, so I'm writing songs like just hanging on when I was like 15, you know, and uh, um, I just, even when I was writing those goofy songs, you know, like, you know, he went that way in a truck and all that, you know, I was very aware of, of uh, life and death. Yeah. Hmm. So, when I finally did have the heart operation, yeah, it was mind boggling and, and some really heavy stuff happened. And, and uh, it was almost like a, it was a spiritual experience in a way. And it went on for quite a long time. And when I came out of the hospital, I couldn't listen to, I couldn't watch like violent movies mm. and I couldn't listen to like real hard rock and roll. It was just too intense. Huh. Like I couldn't watch a John Wayne movie where he's like shooting guys with a, with a, cult you know yeah yeah i just yeah. couldn't watch it man wow. i had to watch you know i and then i could only listen i couldn't even listen to like highway 61 or something like that i needed to listen to like you know uh i listened to miles davis kind of blues you know that was about it you know uh, a silent way and like things like that and then i was sitting at the piano and playing like these like diminished chords like really in a weird place so it did somehow affect me and maybe it moved me to they moved me into a different area of music a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while though. And it's almost led in a way to what I'm doing now, but it's hard to explain really, you know, it, yeah. it's, it was such a trippy thing. Like I had the car parked on an hour meter, man. I, I didn't realize I was going to be in the hospital for five days and have a life or death wow. you know, heart operation, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so <laughs> it was really a shocker, you know, and they saved my life and, uh, Wow. There was moments in there it was really, really psychedelic. Yeah. Well, you talk about, you know, what you're doing now and your uh, latest record, Dr. Moan, is much more kind of moody and uh, and piano driven. It's kind of a, a different uh, vibe. And, and you mentioned just a moment ago the, um, you know, going in a little bit of a different direction. And I'm curious, uh, obviously, there's a lot of piano on this record. Did you write most of these songs on piano versus guitar? And if so, how did that 
sort of put a different uh, slant maybe on the songwriting process. I love piano. I played piano when I was a kid before I left home. So I've always loved the piano, but obviously you can't take piano with you when you hit the road, you know, cowboy <laughs> sitting backwards on a horse playing guitar, you know, now he's not playing piano. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so <laughs> I ran, I traveled a lot and I, I left the piano behind, but I played a lot of piano when I was a kid and I was in bands playing piano and stuff. So when the shutdown happened, you know, the lockdown, I was here in this room and, uh, you know, here in this apartment, the front room has a, has a acrosonic piano, a Baldwin acrosonic. It's a great rock and roll piano. Somebody gave it to me a long time ago and I, you know, I played as much as I can. I love piano. I always played it. I sort of played piano as like a form of relief, like just sort of like a hmm. hobby almost, or like, a, like just kicks. Yeah. You know, I play rock and roll piano and I can play piano and I just dig it, you know. But I hadn't really written, I hadn't really uh, put together that many new songs on it or anything like that. I had some songs from when I was a kid and I played some different things. So I'm in this room and I'm playing every day. I, I said, well, I'm just going to play every day. What else am I going to do? The tour is canceled. I was going <laughs> right. to go all around the world. I had a new album. High, what was it? Highway 62 was out and I, and I had a whole tour lined up, you know, wow. and I had a new record coming out. It was going to be a midnight broadcast and I was going to be able to go all around the world and play and make a lot of money and have, you know, really great time all canceled because of the COVID, COVID epidemic. So I just sat in this room and I started playing like along with uh, Jimmy Yancey and Monk and uh, learning different things I like to play and, you know, uh, different and then the songs just started to sort of erupt out of that. But I was writing all the time, like I tell you, I do, you know. And then so I had ideas going through my head and then I'm sitting at the piano and then I would just start singing along with some of the stuff. That happened maybe after a month of just playing the piano every day, doing Boogie Woogie and, uh, you know, Floyd Kramer licks and stuff, you know, yeah. just having fun or playing gospel or whatever, you know. It just kind of came out naturally. So I, I it is... Um, it is different writing on the piano. It's like your own little symphony. You know, you got your own, the whole thing's orchestrated. You got the bass and the treble and everything. Yeah, I mean, a song like Downtown Nowhere Blues definitely has some of that sort of rolling piano blues feel. At the round o'clock, Donner on a weekday night. The tea and the gang trying to start a fight. A little good talk. I'm curious, at, at what point in the process did you know you were making a record? You know, I guess, I'm not sure, but uh, I guess I always knew I was going to make a record really? at some point. You know, I, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, I'm always going to make a record, I guess, but like I didn't, I didn't know I was going to have a record until, I'm, I'm trying to remember when I go, well, I got a record here. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I can't remember. It was somewhere way in there. Because for someone who writes as much as you do, and, and you were talking about even just sort of playing for therapy or playing for fun, you know, it doesn't always, I'm yeah. sure you didn't just feel like you were getting up and doing a job. Like, I'm, I'm going to write a song for the record today. But at a certain point, I guess you start to see the songs come together and be like, wow, this is, this is actually a body of work. Yeah, it was exciting, really. It was a real exciting record to write. Some of them are more exciting than others because you have more focus. Like, my first record had a lot of focus, you know, and so did... Uh, Full service, no waiting had a lot of focus on mm. it. 
you know, I just like was focused. Like I was like, nah, like a laser, just doing it yeah. every day, wrote it, you know. Um, but it wasn't like a job or anything. I was just doing it. And it, it was the same with this, you know, it had a lot of, uh, I just was really, I, I wanted to do it every day when I got up and did it, you know, yeah. rarely if I, you know, I don't, rarely do I have to make myself do this stuff. Yeah. Because usually like, you know, if, if that's where you're at, you know, it's, it's not, I don't know, you're better off just going to the beach or uh, going <laughs> for a walk or something, you know, because, uh, you know, do something, you know, do something that inspires you man do something good you know because you you know there's no, it's not a foot race and you don't have to get anything done especially in my because you know people aren't like peter where's the new record we got we got to make you know <laughs> you have sales reports to make you know we right. got we've got to like sell the stock for the company and we need the new peter it's, it's not like that you know? <laughs> right so, <laughs> so i'm like you know nobody really cares what i'm doing that much until i actually do it so <laughs> it was pretty free you know one of the songs on the record, uh, have you ever been in trouble? Um, you know, one of the things I noticed about that song, and I'm, I'm curious if this is a conscious thing for you, but you know, you've got lyrics about being in trouble, about feeling danger. And the music actually sounds kind of mildly menacing. In other words, the music fits the words. Have you ever been in trouble? Do you remember how it feels? Or are you living in a bubble caught between the wheels? Tonight you feel the danger rising on the wind Tearing out your jacket, ripping at your skin Have you ever been in trouble? And I don't know if that's something that writers necessarily uh consciously think about or if it's or if that is a very, you know, conscious like okay this, these lyrics, you know, convey this emotion. So I want to make a musical setting that fits that emotion. Um, is that kind of a, a conscious process for you or does it just sort of come out the way it comes out? Well, it's something you definitely, you want to have unity, man. You want to have like the whole thing, like, so it just kind of naturally happens, but it's part of, uh, just the way you think about songs, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, the lyric and then you're like, you know, you get into the thing, you know, it's a whole it's a whole dance, you know, it's a song, you know, you, you, you're going to express musically what's happening, you know? Yeah. Right. Uh, I can't, it's important for the music and the words they have that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, like there's a great book called the Beatles as musicians. Have you ever seen that book? It's kind of rare. It's like volume one and volume two. And these guys, like a, he's a brilliant guy. I can't remember his name right now. And he goes through all the Beatles songs, and he said, got incredible amount of lore about it, more than you see anywhere else. And uh, he's a musicologist, too, and he can take music apart. And he shows you in all these different songs, like how the lyric relates to the music. Wow. Like, huh. you know, it's really interesting. Like, I, you know, it's kind of after the fact to think. That, I mean, I didn't start trying to do that because I read that. But, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it like like. If I fell in love with you by the Beatles, has this like opens up with this big falling chord progression. Oh yeah. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's going yeah. down and down and down and down and that spiraling down, you know. It's an amazing piece of art, you know. Right. Uh, he does that with all their songs, but like my songs are like that too. You realize um sometimes a lot later how it all ties together. Well, yeah, we we never there's that question that people always talk about with songwriting. What comes first, the lyrics or the music? And we don't really ask that question uh, because to me, it's not important which came first. It's important that they go together. 
yeah, you know, you get them any way you can. And sometimes you do get lyrics first. Sometimes you do get music first. And sometimes you get it all at once. Yeah. You know, it, but it is important that they go together. You know, if you're just going to take like a, a lot of times if you write a lyric and then you just, if you don't, you have to be careful to set it to music because it uh, can sound boring, you know, if it's yeah. just like, you know, square sounding, you know. Yeah. So, so you don't want that, you know. The great thing about music driven stuff is that it, um, sometimes maybe, like you can tell that the Bacharach stuff is music driven mostly sure. because because the phrases then that he has to, that the, how David had to write to it, you know, a lot of them have different shapes and sizes. It's not just like couplets, couplets, couplets. Yeah. And so. Uh, yeah, those are complex melodies. Yeah, they're, they're beautiful melodies. Yeah. And so, and, and so they, and they have, they have things for singers in them, you know, with expressive moments. Yeah. Where they're, where they're, you know, they're, where they jump out and they do something and something happens, you know? Yeah. And so like a song like, How, have you ever been in trouble? Things happen in that song. Like there's this, then there's that part. And then like, so, you know, it, start, it starts, it heads inexorably toward like a more, you know, extravagant, you know, a more uh, emotional moment, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, well, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, which is a, a more of a wild card in a way, because it's a bit of a diversion from your your artist career. Um, but in 2010, you had three songs on Robert Randolph and the family band's We Walk This Road record. Um, and uh, you had one, I Still Belong to Jesus, that you wrote solo, and then Dry Bones and I'm Not Listening, which uh, Tony O'Kay and T-Bone Burnett and, and Robert were involved in. Um, that's, uh, you know sort of a return to that thing we talked about at the beginning with uh, the Go-Go's where you had this kind of behind the scenes writing. It wasn't writing for your own uh, voice, right. so to speak. Um, and that seems like a bit of a wild card uh, project. I'm just curious to, to hear a bit about how that happened. Uh, yeah, it was crazy. Uh, I got a phone call. I was going to be going on the road in a few days, but I got a phone call from someone saying, get down to such and such studio for, to meet T-Bone. He wants you down at the studio out in the valley, um, ASAP. It's important. So I get out there, you know, sure, what's going on? They told me, well, you know, cutting an album or something. They need you out there to do something. So I go out there, and what he wanted, he had to make this record really quick for, I guess it was for Warner Brothers, but I'm not quite, or Capital. I can't remember right now at the moment. But uh, Robert Randolph was there, and I knew who he was. And then T-Bone was there, and Tony O'Kay and Keltner was there and a bunch of other guys and the, and the fellows that he plays that steel music with, you know, the sacred steel people. Yeah. And everybody was there and they were making like an, like a, a record. They didn't have the material. Hmm. And so they were down in the studio jamming. And then what they wanted to do is like bring the, when they finally got some jammed music, like they would create this music down in the studio and then bring it up. And me and Tony okay were supposed to write the lyrics to it up in the studio wow. upstairs. <laughs> wow. It was super intense. And so, uh, yeah, sure. You know, it's exciting, you know. So uh, they were doing that. And then one day we were all sitting up there in the lounge, you know, and I was sitting there with, and I had a guitar and Robert was sitting there and I was talking to him and, and all of a sudden I just realized I had a song for him. Oh, wow. I go, this song is for you, man. I just want you to hear this. And I played it for him, and he just immediately goes, I'll record that. I'm cutting that song. Something saved me long ago. How it happened, I don't know. You say it doesn't make much sense. Still, I know it's no coincidence. 
That was super exciting. Uh, and uh, it was fun. It was like a crazy project that only T-Bone would do because only T-Bone would be would get the green light from the record company to do something that crazy. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, he has a way of like talking everybody into everything. So like, <laughs> yeah. So, so that was cool. It was a very unusual project. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, in terms of cool projects, I uh, just want to remind everybody again that the new record is called Dr. Moan. I think it's been seven years since she put out a record of all new original uh, material. Um, and so definitely want to encourage folks to go check out Downtown Nowhere Blues, Have You Ever Been in Trouble? And those are just two of the many great songs on the record that we've mentioned. So go give that a listen and just appreciate you uh, doing this today. And it's been great speaking with you. All right, man. Great talking to you guys. Thanks a lot, Scott. I'll see you guys uh, somewhere down the road. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can keep up with us on Instagram at Songcraft Conversations or Facebook at Songcraft Show. To join our team and help support our content, become a Songcraft patron at patreon.com. Visit p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. And you can always find us at songcraftshow.com. 